This afternoon, we are honored to have speaking here in chapel, Dr. Drew Conley is pastor of the Hampton Park Baptist Church here in the Greenville area. He graduated from Bob Jones University with his undergrad degree and went on to earn his Ph.D. in theology here. He planted the Kennerly Road Baptist Church in Irmo, South Carolina. And since 2000, the last 23 years, he's been pastoring Hampton Park. We're so thankful for his faithful preaching and teaching of God's Word. We're thankful for the sister ministry of Hampton Park Christian School and uh, the many people that are there in that church that have been associated with Bob Jones University here over the years. And that's one of the great blessings of being in Greenville, that there are so many wonderful churches with so many godly pastors that you're able to choose as a student to go and be a part of the church and also to serve and worship there. And so would you please give Dr. Conley a warm welcome as he comes and speaks this afternoon. Well, first, brothers and sisters, I want to thank you for ministering to my heart. Um, I've been in several services. It really sounds different when you're there singing this way and when you're up here where it all funnels in. It just blessed my heart. And then, of course, uh, the song we, we just heard and just the way that you've ministered to one another and to my own heart. And it is a joy to open the Word of God uh, to you and with you uh, this afternoon. Um, this campus is actually uh, the place where I was born and grew up. So this is like my childhood hometown. Uh, those who served here are like my aunts and uncles and family. Uh, a number of them have gone on to be with the Lord along with some classmates, but there's still many of you that are here, and I want to thank you for uh, what you've poured uh, into my life. You provided my training. Um, you were my mentors. It is here that God used you to turn my heart toward the preaching ministry and also taught me the loyal devotion to the Scripture being the sole rule of faith and practice. It was here that I was actually first introduced to the theme of this week. Um, years ago, God's kasa, this steadfast love, and the definition I learned back then, years ago, still rings in my memory, loving loyalty based on a relationship that issues in kind deeds. And actually, the professor that taught that to me is now a member of the church where we are, and so every time I see him, uh, one of the things I remember is kesed. One of the things I remember is just how important that theme is. Because whenever you turn to the Scriptures, you find this theme, this beautiful powerful, stunning trait about who God is and what He's actually like. If you look at the Pentateuch, if you're studying the Psalms, it comes up over and over again. If you listen to the prophets, they thunder out His loving loyalty, His steadfast love, the wisdom books, and, and you see it in the face of Jesus, and you hear it in the teaching of the apostles as well. In our own lives, as we follow Jesus and cling to Him, we find that this steadfast love is our hope through every part of our lives. God's goodness and steadfast love pursue us all the days of our life and see to it that we 
make it safely home. That's the way the psalmist in Psalm 23 puts it. And God, I can testify um, at this stage in my life, has shown his steadfast love in the days of my deep sorrows, in the days of my sins and failings, and in the company of his saints who with me seek to serve the Jesus that they love. Well, this afternoon, we want to look to the book of Jonah to understand the amazing scope of God's steadfast love. And I want to give a heads up to those of you that are part of the congregation at Hampton Park. You're used to my giving you um, a billboarded outline right at the beginning. And I want to tell you right up front, just a heads up, I'm not going to do it. It might be one of five sermons in all my life. I haven't done that, but, but I'm not doing that. Um, I may never try this experiment again. I don't know. But at, at any rate, we're not going to billboard an outline because there's not actually an outline. Um, but we are going to ask a series of questions as we seek to explore really what in the world is going on in Jonah's life. Why is he not lining up with this steadfast love of God? And what is God going to do to actually correct that in his heart? See, Jonah is less a book about Jonah than a book about God. It tells Jonah's story, to be sure, but as a way of revealing to us who God is and what he's like. And we who worship the true God and are his representatives on earth can think and live in ways that are actually at odds with the character and deeds of God. If you think about the history of the world, you see this often happen among those who actually say that they belong to Jesus. Those considered to be godly in the earth can actually behave in a way that is, in fact, ungodly. And that's what we discover about Jonah. He's a legit prophet of God whose heart is out of alignment with God's heart. So this little prophecy gives us a stunning portrait of God set off against a tragic portrait of a servant of God who's not thinking the way God does at all. It happens, and it happens to us. And this book calls us to repent in the same way Jonah needed to. You remember how it all began back in Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now here's a real prophet of the Lord doing exactly opposite of what God commanded him to do with the ridiculous idea that he could actually run from the presence of God. It's not the first time or the last time a genuine believer has disobeyed, nor is it the first or last time that a genuine believer has been delusional in thinking he could get away from God. So the question is, why in the world would a prophet of God choose such a course? You know, and whenever we do the wrong thing, whenever we're thinking the wrong way, we really have to ask ourselves that question. What is it in my heart that's not lined up with God that would lead me to do something? 
contrary, directly contrary, rebellious to God, and make me think that somehow I'm going to shut him out of my life while I do my own thing. Well, it's not actually till chapter 4 that we discover why. Nineveh has repented from their sin, and God has relented from the impending disaster He warned them about through Jonah. And we read these words in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was this not my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, of great steadfast love, and repentest thee of the evil. I mean, he's essentially quoting from Exodus 34, 6, when God revealed himself to Moses and what his character is like. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, doest thou well to be angry? I mean, Jonah is so angry he'd rather be dead. That seems a bit over the top. What is it about the Ninevites that makes God's mercy and steadfast love displayed toward them anger Jonah so much? Well, first, obviously, they are foreign idolaters. And Jonah himself has declared from the belly of the fish in Jonah 2.8, they that observe lying vanities, that is, idols, forsake their own mercy, forsake their own steadfast love. But worse, Nineveh happens to be a leading city in the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire is the rising superpower of the times. The Assyrians were legendary for their brutality and cruelty and warfare. They, they are the greatest clear and present danger to Israel at the time. In fact, in 50 years, that long, half a century after Jonah, they will overrun Israel and cart most of the population off as captives. That God would have compassion on such a violent, idolatrous people violated Jonah's sense of justice. God's action was exactly what Jonah feared God would do because of his steadfast love. And and this is remarkable, and this is what caught my eye in this passage, is, is Jonah already understood this about God, that God was actually this loving, this loyal, not just to Israelites, but even to Assyrians. Old Testament prophet, from Jonah's perspective, God's steadfast love goes too far. It is beyond the bounds. Jonah's real problem is not with the Assyrians. His problem is with God. He didn't want to carry out the mission God gave him because he was not right with God himself. His heart and God's heart are at odds. Now, this has been Jonah's perspective from the start. So the question is, how will God go about correcting Jonah's ungodly thinking? He literally has everything at his disposal to do it. He has everything at his disposal to correct our thinking as well. Ever thought about that? I mean, it's always, that's why it's delusional and ridiculous to think I can run from God, that I can buck God and then think that he's not going to do anything about it. 
God brings everything to bear here. In Jonah 1.4, the Lord sent a great wind into the sea. The mariners got the message. The mariners are worshipers of false gods, but before the storm even stops, they're crying out to the true God, to Yahweh. And when the storm suddenly ceases, after they throw Jonah into the sea, they make sacrifices and vows to Yahweh. I mean, they had like a revival right on the sea. Jonah 1.17, the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. Now, Jonah expected to die. I mean, that's what being thrown into the middle of a stormy sea normally means and usually produces. When he got swallowed by the fish, he thought he was dying. In fact, he describes his prayer from the belly of the fish as crying out from the belly of hell, crying out from Sheol, from the grave. And he talks about the bars closing over him forever. And when the fish spit him out onto the land, he talks about having been brought up from corruption. You remember that Jesus himself uses this very incident as illustrative of what was going to happen with him when he was buried for three days and three nights in the heart of the earth and was raised again. But God's not done with Jonah. He's used the wind. He's used the fish. And now the Lord commands him once again to go to Nineveh to cry out against them. He gives him a second chance, and this time Jonah complies. Reluctantly, his heart hasn't changed yet. His obedience has changed, but not his heart. He proclaims what God told him to preach. And what happens? Well, Jonah 3, 5, so the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. All the things that once were important weren't really that important anymore because they knew that they needed God to rescue them. They knew that without God, they were hopeless and helpless. Verses 8 through 10, the king decrees, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he said that he would do unto them. And he did it not. Jonah has been serving God as a prophet to the northern ten tribes of Israel. They were idolatrous from the time that they split off from the southern tribes, and they never repented, despite prophet after prophet calling them to do so. In fact, many of the minor prophets ministered in the same time that Jonah was ministering. You know, I have to wonder whether Jonah was starving to be heard. Ministering to a stubborn and rebellious people can make a true prophet of God cynical and bitter and wonder what the point of serving God really is. But his success in Nineveh didn't actually bring to him relief. It, it, it added insult to injury. His preaching finally brings repentance, but but not from his own people, not from the people he knows well and cares about, but from their enemies. And for Jonah, it amounts to a defeat. He wants the wicked to pay the price. He wants vengeance. 
And so he's angry at God for showing steadfast love to the Ninevites instead of pouring out judgment on them. Now, at this point, we're reading this book, and I think most people look at the prophet Jonah. He's just an odd guy. Like, what kind of prophet is this? And, and we're wondering, why, why doesn't God just zap Jonah? I mean, everything and everybody obeys God except Jonah. The wind obeys God, the sea, the, the mariners, the fish, the Ninevites, and the gourd and the worm and the east wind, but not the prophet of God. Why, why doesn't God just destroy Jonah? Same reason that he didn't destroy Nineveh. Steadfast love that goes beyond the bounds. He's going to keep working on Jonah. Rebel prophet though he is. I mean, one of the most striking features of the Jonah account is God's relentless love toward Jonah. Instead of killing Jonah on the spot for his rebellion and petulant attitude, the the Lord keeps asking Jonah questions. By the way, that's a great way to confront people about their sin. And and, and instead of telling them off and, and lowering the hammer on them, start asking questions that probe their heart, their motivation, and deal with where they really are. And, and God does it with Jonah. He, he's exposing the wickedness of his heart in order to stir conviction and prompt repentance. And, and that's what God is doing, actually, when the book stops. I mean, it's almost like it doesn't end. It just stops. And we're left hanging, wondering what Jonah will do next. But God is the one with the last word. By the way, he always has the last word. In Jonah 4, we read about these last words with Jonah, beginning in verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad for the gourd, but God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass, when the sun did arise, that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah, and he fainted, and he wished in himself to die, and said, it's better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, likely referring to young children, and also much cattle. The book ends with a question, but God's heart is clear. From this account, we come to understand that God's compassion extends to the entire creation, not just Jews, but also Gentiles, not just with those with a Bible, but those without it, men, women, children, 
even animals. He's the creator and the sustainer of them all. His redemption will restore people from every nation, kindred, and tongue, and all creation with it. We're told by Romans that creation groans waiting for that day. And the way the Lord asks this question implies that it is completely right and godlike for him to have this kind of pity. And that it would be completely wrong for God not to be thinking this way. So my question to you this afternoon is, is that how you see God? Is that how you see God? Do you understand who God is for who He actually is? Yes, He's holy. And yes, He judges sin and has absolute power and the perfect right to do so with complete devastation. But the Bible is about more than that, the self-revelation of God. If God were not also compassionate and merciful, everything would fall apart. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He holds back the full brunt of sin's fallout. And most importantly, He has determined to turn His sovereign power toward rescuing and transforming rebel sinners, healing their broken lives and their broken world. So relentless God is in this purpose that He's actually willing to bear our sin and suffer our death Himself in order to give us life. This is exactly what Jesus Christ, God the Son, accomplished for us. If God's steadfast love were not beyond the bounds, there would be no gospel, no hope, Jesus need never have come to earth, and all this talk of heaven would be nothing more than wishful fantasies of delusional sinners deserving God's wrath. Of all people on earth, anyone who knows the Scripture and claims to belong to the people of God, that is, the God of the Bible, has to believe this and must display it by the way they interact with others. If there were 120,000 children in the city of Nineveh, some estimate that the total population was somewhere around 600,000. That would have made it one of the most populous cities of the time. If estimates of the, the world's population at the time are accurate, for every 167 people alive on the planet at the time, one lived in Nineveh. So Jonah, prophet of God though he is, is more concerned about whether he has a plant to shade him from the sun than about 600,000 people, along with their livestock and possessions, that they be utterly destroyed. He has pity for a plant, but no pity for these people. They don't matter to him. And it ticks him off that they matter to God. He doesn't care about other people so long as he has his shade. He has the light of God, but has no interest in taking that light into the darkness. His heart is shriveled and bitter and self-focused, and that puts him utterly at odds with God. 
because God's heart is wide as the world. Jonah's twisted view of things lived on among many in Christ's day who claimed to know the true God and to serve Him. Christ said in Matthew 12, 41, the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. Now behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Strikingly, Jonah's hometown is not far from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. Nineveh listened to Jonah better than Nazareth listened to Jesus. It's not uncommon for the most resistant people to God to be found not in the street, but in the pew. They feel secure in their knowledge about God, but they aren't close to God as a person, nor do they look at life or at people the way He does. So what do we do with all this? Well, first, let's start with this question. Do I, do I realize how vast God's steadfast love really is? And, and once I have that index, once that's in my mind and is taking control of my heart, what needs to change in my own heart toward others so that my heart lines up with God's heart toward them? I mean, think about the people that irritate you most. What is God's heart toward them? Think about the people that make life inconvenient or hard for you. What is God's heart toward them? And what is yours? For whom should I be praying and caring? Like maybe my response to the irritation or to the hurt that comes from another person ought not first be anger, but maybe first ought to be prayer. Knowing that what's coming out from them reveals that there's something wrong inside that only God can fix. And what relationship should I be pursuing to fulfill the mission God has given me? You see, mission is not out there somewhere. It is there, but have you ever thought about this, that missions is always local? I mean, I guess you can do it on the internet virtually away from where you are, but the reality is that, that carrying out mission has to be with the people that are where you are. You might move your location, but, but, but the modus operandi is still the same. Start with the people who are already in your life. It's great to plan to go to people that are across the ocean, and you, and you should as God leads you. But, but what are you doing to serve the people that are in your life right now? Your roommate, your family members, your younger brothers and sisters, your classmates, even those that are teaching you, since we're all human beings and we all have needs and we all need others, to minister to us, what are you doing to show the heart of God? And so I have to ask myself the question, will I spend my life pursuing my own comfort, gourds growing over my head, with no care for people who need God? To be holier than thou is actually to be unholy. To be more righteous than God is to be unrighteous, because the sovereign God is compassionate 
And truly, godly people are compassionate too. We saw that beautifully portrayed just this week in reviewing the story of Ruth and the empty and the bitter, the invisible outsider, the lonely that God in His steadfast love elevated to be the ancestors of the Messiah Himself. If you think about the way God deals with all of us when we come to faith in Him, He he transfers us from darkness into light. He gives us an inheritance that only He deserves. He, He gives us a future that is so bright that it seems, from our vantage point, nearly impossible, like pipe dreams, like fantasy. And yet He lavishes it on us. So did Jonah ever repent of his ungodly attitude? Well, the Scripture record gives us some hope. The only other reference to Jonah is in 2 Kings 14, 23 to 27. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign in Samaria. This is Jeroboam II. Jeroboam I brought the golden calf and wanted to make sure people were separate in their worship as well as in their politics. This is Jeroboam II. He reigned 40 and one years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, is Jeroboam the first, who made Israel to sin. He restored the coast of Israel from entering of Hamath into the Sea of the Plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath-hefer. Why did God give this blessing on the rebellious ten tribes? For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter, that there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. And the Lord said not that He would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but He saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now, many believe that this happened before Jonah's mission trip to Nineveh. But what is clear is that God showed steadfast love to the northern ten tribes of Israel, idolatrous from the day they broke from the southern tribes, even during the days of an evil king, Jeremiah II, when many of the minor prophets are crying out against the sins and idolatry of the nation. God used an evil king to bring good to the land. That's not difficult for him. Remember, he has everything at his disposal. He uses gourds and worms and fish and storms and evil kings and prophets like Jonah. Jonah was chosen to bring good news in the middle of such evil days, also demonstrating God's steadfast love beyond the bounds. Maybe the fact that we have the book of Jonah at all is the biggest clue as to whether Jonah ever got right with God. It's hard to imagine that anyone but Jonah could have written parts of it. He paints himself as the bad guy, displaying the humility that repentance always bears. He writes a story of God's steadfast love set against the dark backdrop of his own rebellious attitude out of alignment with the loving heart of God. If you think about it, this kind of steadfast love is the very heart of the gospel. 
There'd be no good news without it. There'd be no way back to the Lord for wicked cities or for loveless prophets or for sinners like us. The gospel tells us that God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the heart of God. He doesn't excuse the wrong. He dies for it in our place. And when God the Son took on human flesh, he displayed this kind of over-the-top compassion throughout his ministry. I mean, Jonah sat overlooking the great city of Nineveh after its inhabitants had repented, and he's angry with God for relenting from destroying them. But when Jesus Christ looked over the great city of Jerusalem, which had refused to repent, though someone far greater than Jonah had preached there, he wept over them. In Luke 19, when he came near, he beheld the city, he wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong to thy peace, and now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Or the way Matthew puts it in Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent out of thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings. And you would not. You are not willing. Listen, this afternoon, you, you might feel that you're actually too far gone. You know that God knows what's going on in your heart and in your life, and you've said no to God too many times. You're so tangled up in your sin, there seems to be no escape. And from a human perspective, and even a religious perspective, you're probably right. But God's steadfast love goes beyond the bounds and reaches sinners who are hopeless and helpless. If God spared Nineveh when they repented, if God kept pursuing Jonah when he was running from God and angry at God, then there's hope for you. And there's hope for me. No wonder the psalmist declares in Psalm 36, how excellent is thy loving kindness, thy steadfast love, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. Jesus, we're here today, and he is, We have words like what he would say, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. God's steadfast love is such that He will not let that sin bar the gate to your rescue. So you shouldn't let it either. 
Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. You and I need a God like this, a God full of steadfast love that goes beyond the bounds. And as the old song says, when you come, when you arise and go to Jesus, he will embrace you in his arms. Let's pray. Oh, God, we know that you are great and we know that you are powerful. And yet sometimes, Lord, we, we doubt the depth and breadth of your love. We doubt it for people that seem like they've gone too far. We, we doubt it when we are in our depths of despair. We're tangled up in our sin. We doubt that you would love us enough to rescue us. And yet, God, that is your message from cover to cover. That is your message that you love a fallen race this much. And that I, as a member of this fallen race, will be embraced if I will but yield my heart to the loving heart of God. Lord, help us live within this sphere, this safety of your steadfast love, and let us spend our days reveling in it and rejoicing in it and spreading it from shore to shore that this is the God we serve, a God that has steadfast love beyond the bounds, that rescues the least likely people and makes them kings and priests and children of an everlasting kingdom, the kingdom of his Son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.